Hey everyone, welcome back to Think for Christ. My name is Anthony Alberino. If you've been with me so far, you'll know that we've been on a series um, titled Evangelical Anti-Intellectualism. This is our fifth episode of this series, and today we are finally going to turn to Scripture to consider whether a biblical case can be made for anti-intellectualism. My plan here is to examine a handful of the more popular passages from the New Testament, which are sometimes used by well-meaning Christians to discourage other Christians from intellectual pursuits. Now, the texts that I've chosen for review are the ones that most frequently show up in the literature. They're also the ones that I have personally encountered frequently in my own life. Now, I'm not claiming that these are the only passages in the Bible that could possibly be used in support of a kind of Christian anti-intellectualism. All I'm claiming is that they just seem to me to be the most promising passages from the Bible. So if we can deal with these scriptures, I think we will have made a good case that the New Testament does not offer support for anti-intellectualism, since these are probably the best texts that one could marshal. All right, let's do it. So we begin first with a passage from the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 10, verse 21, we read, quote, In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." End quote. Now, there are some who use this passage to support the idea that follower, followers of Christ should not be intellectuals or highly educated or critical thinkers. Rather, Christ followers should be simple-minded people who just read their Bibles and trust in the Lord. Now, those who interpret the text this way say that Jesus is here contrasting the wise and understanding who do not believe in him with those who are childlike in understanding and knowledge and who do believe in him. So according to this interpretation, knowledge is hostile to faith. This, however, is just a bad misreading of these words of Christ. First, notice that this is not a passage where Jesus is teaching or instructing. Instead, he's rejoicing. He's expressing gratitude to the Father for something that the Father has done. Specifically, Jesus is thanking the Father because he has decided to hide himself from a certain kind of person, and he's decided to reveal himself to a different kind of person. Jesus is rejoicing in the Father's choice of the elect, of um, those who were being saved. So Jesus says that he reveals himself, or he reveals who he truly is, to whomever the Father chooses, and that the Father has chosen that he reveal himself, not to the wise and understanding, but to those who are like little children. 
So the first thing we want to notice, then, is that this passage is not about the Christian life at all. It has nothing whatever to do with the character of Christian discipleship, or about whether or not a follower of Christ ought to pursue education or a life of the mind. And anyone who uses this passage in the context of Christian discipleship is simply taking it out of context. Still, we might ask what it means for someone to be wise in understanding here, on the one hand, and little children on the other. Why does God choose one over the other for salvation? I think that's a fair question. And I think we can say right off the top here that Jesus is not rejoicing because God is passing over smart people and choosing to save dummies. This would be far too simplistic a reading of this text. I actually don't think that a person's intelligence or knowledge is primarily what is in focus for Christ in this passage at all. Rather, I think what Jesus is talking about is the um, disposition of a person's heart, the state of their soul. What I mean is that the Father is not hiding the revelation of Christ from smart or educated people. He's hiding his revelation in Christ from people who think that they are wise in their own eyes, from people who are self-sufficient, from people who do not consider themselves to need forgiveness. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, Jesus makes a statement that I think clarifies what's going on here. He says, quote, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's in Luke chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Now, this passage is a true counterpart to Luke chapter 10, verse 21, because both are speaking about the kind of person that is being chosen for salvation during the ministry of Christ. In Luke 5, Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees and scribes for eating with tax collectors and sinners. He had just called Levi, the tax collector, as one of his disciples. His answer to the Pharisees is that he has come to call those who know that they are sinners and in need of salvation. He has nothing to say to those who think that they are righteous before God and not in need of salvation. It's not that the Pharisees were smart and that the tax collectors were dumb. It's rather that the Pharisees were self-righteous. They were wise in their own eyes, and they had no need of understanding according to their own assessment. Likewise, when in Luke 10, Jesus speaks of the wise and understanding, he is describing those who are self-righteous, those who are spiritually well in their own eyes. And when he speaks of the little children, he is describing those who know that they are spiritually sick and in need of salvation. That Christ is not here commending a kind of childlike intellect among believers is later confirmed by the Apostle Paul. When he tells the Corinthians, quote, Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. That's from 1 Corinthians 14.20. Now, unlike the passage in Luke where Jesus is praising God for revealing himself to people who are spiritually sick, to little children, Paul is directly speaking here to a community of believers, and he's instructing them. And he's instructing them to be mature in their thinking as disciples of Christ. So this passage in Luke gives no warrant whatsoever for um, supporting a kind of anti-intellectual, anti-intellectualism among Christian disciples. 
Now, probably the most common passage in the entire Bible used to defend a kind of Christian anti-intellectualism is found in the first two chapters of 1 Corinthians. So we'll go ahead and read this passage in its entirety. Here I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 2, verse 5. So, quote, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." End quote. Now this passage is often interpreted as a general indictment against argument, reason, and secular knowledge. And it's not hard to see why. I mean, a first reading of the text seems to suggest that Paul's saying that human wisdom is completely and utterly worthless. He says things like God has destroyed and thwarted the wisdom of the wise and that he's made it foolish. He says that in, in their wisdom, the wise failed to know God. And he, re, he reminds the Corinthian believers that they were not counted as among the wise, according to those who were wise in the world. Moreover, Paul says that when he preached the gospel in Corinth, he deliberately refrained from the use of lofty speech and, and what he says is plausible words of wisdom. So we can understand why some take this passage to be a general condemnation of human reason and knowledge in general. But is this really what Paul's doing? Is he casting general aspersion on the human intellect and reason as such? Well, I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that when we look closer, we can see that what Paul is actually denouncing here is not human wisdom and reason itself but rather a false wisdom and a prideful use of reason. So I think that Paul is first announcing a false wisdom that judges the gospel to be foolish. 
Paul says that the gospel is evaluated as a stumbling block by the wisdom of the Jews and as foolishness by the wisdom of the Greeks. For the Jews, the idea that the conquering Messiah that was to come, the idea that this Messiah should be murdered by means of a crucifixion was utterly unthinkable for them. There really was no more shameful way to die in the mind of a Jew than by crucifixion. And the reason was because, as it says in the book of Deuteronomy, anyone hung from a tree was considered to be cursed by God. In Deuteronomy 21-23, we read, a hanged man is cursed by God. For the Greeks, it was the idea of the resurrection that seemed absurd to them. There was a long tradition in Greek thought, going back to at least Plato here, that the body was a kind of prison for the soul, that bodily existence was a kind of inferior existence, and that at death, the soul was finally liberated, finally released from the restraint of the body. So the thought that a dead person should come back to life in a physical body was laughable to the mind of many Greeks. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would a soul want to be imprisoned again in a body. It was therefore a false wisdom that was keeping both the Jews and the Greeks from embracing the gospel. Paul says that the gospel, which was judged to be foolish by the Jews and the Greeks, was actually the true wisdom, and that the wisdom of the Jews and Greeks was actually foolishness. And I think Paul would say that all who by their reason judge the gospel to be foolish are beholden to a kind of false wisdom, or what he would call a wisdom of the world. So Paul is therefore not speaking against wisdom per se here, or wisdom as such, but against a counterfeit wisdom, a wisdom that rejects the true wisdom of God. So I think that Paul is here speaking against the false wisdom, but I also think that he's speaking against the prideful use of reason. And ultimately, I think the real vice that comes out in this passage, and the one that has Paul's attention, is human pride. Paul is dramatically condemning the pride of men who boast in their own wisdom. In their pride, people think that they can find their own way to God, that they can figure out things on their own, that they're self-sufficient, that they're their own authority. But the message of the gospel totally obliterates this kind of thinking. The gospel is the enemy of human pride and self-sufficiency because it declares that we are all utterly helpless before God and powerless to save ourselves. Our sinful and fallen state has left us totally unable to reach God by means of our own effort and our own ingenuity, our own wisdom. And this is why Paul says that in the gospel, God has put an end to all boasting of human pride. The gospel humbles us because we have to renounce our own efforts to reach God and surrender to the salvation accomplished on our behalf in Christ. So God judges the pride of men in the gospel because it must be received. The gospel must be received in humility. God has demonstrated the folly of man's pride by offering salvation through the seemingly foolishness of the gospel message, and by saving those who are humble, by saving those who are meek, those who are poor in spirit. So 
I think we can say that Paul is indeed condemning the wisdom of the world here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. But the wisdom that he is denouncing here is not human wisdom and reason as such, but rather a counterfeit wisdom and a prideful use of reason. That Paul is not speaking against reason and argument in general here is also made obvious from his own practice. Consider Paul's standard mode of operation on his missionary journeys as recorded in the book of Acts. In Thessalonica, we read that Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In Athens, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In Ephesus, Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when the Jews resisted his words, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And we're told by Luke that while Paul was in Corinth, that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So obviously, Paul's own practice shows that he was not against reasoning, that he was not against argument, that he was not against the use of human wisdom. But if Paul was not speaking against the use of reason in general, why then does he remind the Corinthians here that when he preached to them, he did not use lofty speech and plausible words of wisdom? It's likely that by refusing to use lofty speech, and plausible words of wisdom, Paul is deliberately contrasting himself with the Greek rhetoricians that were common in first century Greece and who made a living off the art of persuasion. In the first century Greco-Roman world, one of the most important skills an ambitious person could learn was that of rhetoric. Rhetoric was the art of persuasive speech, an art that had been honed and refined for more than 500 years at this point in history. Being able to speak well and persuade an audience was seen as one of the crucial abilities needed for upward mobility in Greek and Roman society and as a way to gain wealth. The problem with rhetoricians is that they were not really concerned about the truth, but rather only about persuasions. Their aim was to convince with oratory talent, not to get at the truth. So Paul is probably drawing a contrast here with the rhetoricians of the day who use skillful speech and cunning discord to persuade and to convince for profit. Paul, on the other hand, says he came to Corinth not to persuade the Corinthians for his own benefit, for his own profit, but to preach to them the truth of the gospel for their benefit and for their profit. And unlike the rhetoricians who relied on rhetorical flair and skill to convince, Paul reminds the Corinthians that he humbly preached the gospel without flair, without rhetorical skill. He preached a message that was confirmed by God through the working of miracles. So Paul's basically saying, look, guys, I didn't convince you with a clever style of discourse to believe something that was dubious. I just preached the gospel. God performed the miracles, and you believed. It's as simple as that. I didn't try to persuade you or convince you against your better judgment, as the other guys tried to do. So I don't think that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 is a passage that can be used against the idea that Christian disciples ought to 
pursue a life of the mind or try to develop their intellect for Christ. All right, I think enough has been said here regarding this passage. Let's move on. Our next passage is found in the letter to the Colossians, again from Paul. Here I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, some have taken Paul's words here to be a condemnation of secular study in general and philosophical study in particular. Paul says, doesn't he, that we shouldn't study philosophy or anything related to traditional human learning. So there you have it. Let's just read our Bibles and pray. Well, let me just say that I sure hope this is not what Paul means, because if it is, I've wasted a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of money pursuing a PhD in philosophy. But of course, I'm not worried since this is a misreading of this text. The focus here is obviously on the word philosophy. And the question is, what does Paul mean by this word? What he almost certainly doesn't mean by the term is what we mean by it today. The word philosophy, as commonly used today, designates an intellectual discipline. It's a well-defined area of study that you can earn a degree in. To be a philosopher today is to be professionally trained in this technical discipline. In Paul's day, however, the word philosophy did not denote a particular intellectual discipline or specific branch of study. Instead, it was a much broader term that ranged over all intellectual pursuit in general, including subjects that we would not consider to be philosophical today, like science and medicine and psychology, even astronomy, and so on. In the Greco-Roman period then, philosophers were just scholars or learned people rather than practitioners of some special or distinct discipline. So when Paul uses the word philosophy, he's not using it in the way that we use it today to refer to an academic specialization. A better way to translate what Paul is getting at here in our modern idiom is with the term heresy or false teaching. Paul is warning the Colossian believers not to be taken captive to false teaching that was based on human opinion and not on the sound teaching delivered by the apostles. Bible translators point out that the sentence, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, can also be translated as, see to it that no one takes you captive by the philosophy which is empty deceit. This latter translation better fits with the context of the passage. The wider context makes it clear that Paul is not here issuing a warning about philosophy in general, but a warning about a particular philosophy or a particular false teaching that had infiltrated the church. When we continue on in chapter 2, we can see that Paul is warning the Colossians to beware of a false teaching that we can today identify as a kind of proto-Gnosticism, an early form of Gnosticism, which was a kind of a, a New Age view that would threaten the first century church. Paul provides us with some of the characteristics of this false teaching. He said it had to do with questions of food and drink, or with regard to festivals, new moons, the Sabbath. It insisted on asceticism and the worship of angels, and with visions. Paul says it was puffed up without reason. It was concerned with regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It was based on human precepts and teachings, 
And uh, it centered on asceticism and severity to the body. The teaching that Paul is countering is one that combined mystical knowledge with an austere asceticism and legalism. Clearly, then, philosophy in general is not the focus here for Paul, but rather it's a certain kind of philosophy or a certain kind of false teaching that was endangering the Colossian church. So, I think we can confidently say, based on the context of this passage, that Paul's warning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, is simply to avoid a false teaching and heresy that was spreading among some in the early church. He's not telling the Colossians to avoid philosophy in the technical sense as a discipline of study, nor is he warning them to avoid human scholarship or wisdom in general. Now, ironically, I think that this chapter in Colossians actually works to underscore the importance of the study of philosophy rather than discourage it. And this for the simple fact that in order to avoid bad philosophy, one has to know what that bad philosophy is. As Norman Geisler has said, we cannot properly beware of philosophy unless we be aware of philosophy. Paul himself was evidently quite familiar with the teaching of these proto-Gnostics, and he could therefore warn the Colossian church about it. It almost seems too obvious to point out that you cannot tell someone to avoid a, a certain false teaching or a certain bad philosophy unless you can explain what's bad about it and communicate the idea clearly. So I think we can also say that one of the best ways to equip believers to avoid bad philosophy is to teach them good philosophy. As Thomas Aquinas writes, quote, seeing that a teacher of sacred scripture must at times oppose the philosophers, it is necessary for him to make use of philosophy, end quote. And as C.S. Lewis famously says, quote, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered, end quote. All right, let's quickly look at one more place in scripture where people often go when they want to discourage fellow Christians from intellectual pursuit. And for whatever it's worth, this is the one that gets tossed in my face more often than any other. And of course, I'm talking about that famous maxim from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up. Now, some have taken this brief statement of Paul's to mean that knowledge and pride are inseparable, that the pursuit of knowledge inevitably ends in pride. I remember once telling a pastor of a local evangelical church where I live that I had a degree in philosophy. His response was to ask how I could study philosophy without becoming a, quote, arrogant prick. Now, when I asked for clarification of his meaning, he told me that he didn't think it was possible to study an intellectual discipline like philosophy without becoming arrogant. Now, unfortunately, there are many within the evangelical community, and yes, even among the church leadership, who share this general sentiment. After all, why would anybody pursue knowledge unless they wanted to make a show of it, unless they wanted to glory in it? Well, as common as this sentiment is among believers, it certainly doesn't draw any support from what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 8.1, and we can easily see this when we consider the context of his statement. And that context concerns the eating of food, the eating of meat that had been offered to idols. Often the food sacrifices that were placed before the altar of a god were later sold in the marketplace. Now, technically, Paul says that there's nothing sinful about eating meat offered to an idol, since 
the gods represented by those idols don't really exist. It was just superstitious, and therefore the meat wasn't really polluted. However, there were some believers in the Corinthian church who were immature in their thinking when it came to this issue, and who believed that eating meat offered to idols was sinful, and that it ought not be done by a Christian. Now, because to sin against conscience is to sin against God, according to Paul, he tells the mature believers in Corinth to give up the eating of meat so as not to cause a weaker believer to stumble by following their example and thus violating their conscience and therefore sinning against God. He writes to those who are mature in their thinking, quote, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not he be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. End quote. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul's point is that when it comes to disputes like this in the church, love is more important than knowledge. My brother's soul is more important than my own personal liberties. That's what he's saying. In other words, it's not knowledge as such here that Paul says is the real problem. It's not knowledge per se that puffs up. It's knowledge without love that's the problem. Paul's saying that it is a loveless knowledge that puffs up and leads to pride. So when well-meaning believers use these words to discourage other believers from pursuing knowledge— they're ripping Paul's words right out of the context and deploying them in a way that the apostle did not intend. Now, it's of course true that people who have knowledge can be prideful. Obviously, they can be. But it doesn't follow from this that knowledge entails pride or that knowledge necessarily leads to pride or that the two are somehow essentially conjoined. Smart people do not have a monopoly on pride. Trust me, lots of ignorant people are prideful too. Pride comes in all shapes, all sizes, can be found in all kinds of people. The important point here is that pride and knowledge do not have to go together. Educated people can be humble, and uneducated people can be prideful. Again, there's nothing in this statement from Paul here to suggest otherwise. All right, so these are the passages that are most commonly used to support anti-intellectualism, at least as it seems to me. So I hope that I've shown here that none of them, when rightly understood in their context, speaks against the use of reason or the cultivation of the Christian mind.